Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, January 18th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top stories. China's population drops for the first time since 1961. Also, China faces one of its worst GDP growths in decades. Russia announces plans to expand troops to 1.5 million. Police officers go on trial in Indonesia over a soccer stampede. The U.S. Supreme Court hears a Turkish bank's case. The U.K. blocks a Scottish gender recognition bill. A former New Mexico GOP candidate is arrested. Elon Musk faces a trial over 2018 tweets. The Taliban will start buying blue ticks on Twitter. And scientists steer lightning bolts using lasers. In our first story, China's population drops for the first time since 1961. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, The Guardian, Reuters, The South China Morning Post, and Fox News. On Tuesday, China's National Bureau of Statistics announced that the country's population has declined for the first time in more than 60 years. The population decreased to 1.411 billion in 2022, a drop of 850,000 from 2021. The latest figures reportedly mark China's first population decline since 1961 during the Great Famine, triggered by former leader Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward policy. While the country's 2022 birth rate declined to 6.77 births per 1,000 people from 7.52 in 2021, the lowest birth rate on record, it also recorded its highest death rate since 1976 at 7.37 deaths per 1,000 people compared to 7.18 deaths in 2021. The PRC's National Bureau of Statistics chief, Kang Yi, said the trend should not cause concern, as overall labor supply still exceeds demand. Beijing's one-child policy between 1980 and 2015 and its strict zero-COVID policies are believed to be factors in new demographic trends. However, due to the announcement's potential socioeconomic impact, in 2021, Beijing and local governments rolled out a series of stimulus measures to boost population growth, including allowing couples to have three children and collect benefits. Meanwhile, a recent UN estimate suggests that India's total population will surpass that of China by April to reach nearly 1.7 billion by 2050, compared to China's projected 1.31 billion. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. Let's begin our narrative spins with Narrative A from China Daily. It's hardly surprising that China's population growth would eventually slow greatly. However, in order not to jeopardize further economic development, Beijing now has to focus not only on continuing on the path from an industrial to a service sector economy, but also on expanding technological innovation. Moreover, if China's economic policy takes into account the consumption needs, not only of the young, but also of the growing elderly population, its population may decline, but its economy is set for further growth. And Narrative B is provided by The Washington Post. The population decline in China risks numerous negative consequences for its economic growth, as the Chinese economic model remains reliant on a large supply of labor. This hardly reversible demographic trend is likely to trigger not only higher prices due to increased labor costs, but cause more problems with the underfunded national pension system, 
As a result, China may struggle to surpass the U.S. economically in the foreseeable future, unless government policies to boost fertility produce results. And we have a narrative C from Axios. The fact that India is set to replace China as the world's most populous country could yield major global economic impact, since significant production capacity will be moved to the subcontinent. Added to this is the West's geopolitically motivated tilt toward New Delhi. Both developments may boost India's economic and political stance against China, with its economy potentially surpassing not only China's, but also that of the U.S. by the second half of the century. So often we hear about something's declining because its rate of growth has reduced. And in this case, not only is the rate of growth reduced, it's going negative. So it's this China's population is going down. Right. And still, it is huge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. In the grand scheme of things, it's uh, just a small dip for China. Yeah, it's interesting. It almost seems like the most important part of this is not the number of people, which is still tremendous, but the shifting demographics, the people they have are going to get older in the, on, the, on the average. Right. And in more Sinocentric news, China's 3% GDP growth is one of its worst in decades. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, CNBC, Reuters, Forbes, Al Jazeera, and the New York Times. China's economy expanded well below the government target in 2022, growing by just 3%, one of the worst performances in nearly half a century, largely due to frequent COVID outbreaks and lockdowns, extreme heat waves, and a historic downturn in the property market. Beijing had set a target growth rate of 5.5% last March, but the data unveiled on Tuesday by the PRC's National Bureau of Statistics was better than the 2.8% forecast in a Reuters poll. This comes as China's fourth quarter growth beat market expectations, expanding 2.9% in October to December from a year earlier, but slower than the third quarter's 3.9% pace. This is the second worst level since 1976, the final year of the decade-long cultural revolution. China's economy is expected to be boosted in 2023, with investment bank Chanson & Company's managing director Shen Meng stressing that a 5% growth target is likely to be settled as Beijing dismantles its zero-COVID policy and reopens the country to the world. China's strict zero-COVID pandemic policy impacted the PRC's economy toward the end of 2022, with lockdowns slowing down growth in Shanghai and Guangzhou. Zero COVID was curtailed in early December in sync with a viral outbreak, but PRC officials maintain that the economy will rebound after the infections peak. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll start the narrative spins with an anti-China narrative from the New York Times. The outlook for the Chinese economy is uncertain as the property sector is weighed down by enormous corporate debt and the Chinese population has begun to shrink. It's unclear if some workers will come back to their cities of work after Lunar New Year travels. Worse yet, foreign demand has fallen due to higher interest rates, which have dampened the demand for imported goods from China. And Xinhua Net brings us the pro-China narrative. The PRC's economy is certain to improve this year. The signs are there, showing a vast market potential that will result in growth. China has made economic stability its top priority for the new year and will pursue progress while ensuring stability. Compared with other major economies, the 3% growth rate is relatively remarkable. The worsening global economic situation needs China's steady growth as a stabilizer. 
Clearly, the latest figures show that China is maintaining its position as the world's second largest economy. And we have our first nerd narrative today from the Metaculous Prediction community says there's a 40 percent chance that China's GDP will overtake the U.S. before 2030. It's the year of the rabbit. So I don't know how um, astrological you are, Scott, but how that affects the narratives. Right. Well, Which first of all, I'm an with? Aries. So watch yourself. All right. Oh. It's day 328 of the Ukrainian conflict, and Russia will expand its troops to 1.5 million. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Pravda, U.S. News and World Report, and Zoya. On Tuesday, following a decree from Russian President Putin, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu chaired a meeting with deputies and senior commanders in which he pledged to facilitate Russia's buildup of its armed forces to 1.5 million troops by 2026. In a call with reporters, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said the decision was a direct consequence of the West's so-called proxy war with Russia. He said it stems from the war that the countries of the collective West are waging, which includes indirect involvement in military activities and elements of an economic war, financial war, legal warfare, steps that go beyond the legal field, and so on. The announcement came as 14 NATO surveillance planes were due to arrive in Romania on Tuesday. NATO said the airborne warning and control system, surveillance planes, would only conduct reconnaissance flights over NATO territory. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials announced the renewing of railway traffic to Romania on Tuesday. A day earlier, Putin spoke with Turkish counterpart Recep Tayyip Erdogan. According to a Turkish readout of the call, the pair discussed potential prisoner swaps and Ankara's readiness to act as a mediator in potential peace talks. Elsewhere, emergency services in Dnipro completed their searches of the rubble on Tuesday and confirmed that 44 civilians were killed, while 79 more were injured. However, 20 more remain missing after the blast at the residential tower block. Meanwhile, speaking at the Swiss resort of Davos, Andriy Yermak, head of the Ukrainian presidential staff, said 9,000 civilians had been killed in Ukraine since the beginning of the conflict. On Monday, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights reported that it had confirmed the deaths of 7,031 civilians in territory controlled by both Kyiv and Moscow, but warned that real figures could be considerably higher. On the ground, Ukrainian officials reported that in Russian attacks in the last 24 hours, two civilians were further killed and one was injured in Donetsk, while one civilian was killed in Mykolaiv. Two civilians were reported injured in Kharkiv. Shelling was also reported in Zaporizhia and Dnipropetrovsk, with no reports of civilian casualties. In Ukrainian attacks, one civilian was injured after shelling was reported in Russia's Belgorod region. Pro-Russia officials also reported that two civilians were killed and three more were injured in Ukrainian shelling of Russian-controlled parts of Kherson. Four civilians were also reported killed and four more were injured in Ukrainian attacks on Donetsk. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from I-24 News. After losses of personnel and territory it had captured, Russia's plan to build up its army to 1.5 million soldiers is further acknowledgement from Putin that this war isn't going as expected. And TASS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. Russia's buildup of troops is a direct consequence of the West's proxy war against Moscow. Had the West not carried out its crusade against Russia while pumping Ukraine full of weapons and military aid, this situation could have been averted. 
And we have a nerd narrative on this story as well. This one says, There's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory. Police officers in Indonesia are on trial over a soccer stampede. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Diplomat, NHK World Japan, Voice of America, and Euronews. An Indonesian court began a trial on Monday of three police officers, a security official, and a match organizer charged with negligence over their alleged roles in a deadly soccer stadium stampede that claimed the lives of 135 people last October. They could face a maximum prison sentence of five years if convicted over the disaster at the Kanjaruhan Stadium in Malang, East Java, which reportedly occurred after police fired tear gas to disperse fans who flooded the pitch after the home team lost to their rival. The incident has prompted widespread questions surrounding the training and professionalism of Indonesia's police, with an official fact-finding team concluding that the excessive and indiscriminate use of tear gas by the police had set off a panicked run for the exits. There were initially six suspects, but one still remains under police investigation. Tear gas, along with firearms, is prohibited at matches according to guidelines set out by soccer's international governing body, FIFA. At the time of the disaster, police characterized the incident as a riot and announced two police officers were killed. Videos of the event show officers using force, kicking and hitting fans with batons, and pushing spectators back into the stands. Indonesia's Human Rights Commission found that police fired 45 rounds of tear gas into the crowd at the end of the match. The commission also determined that locked doors, stadium overcapacity, and negligence in implementing safety measures worsened the death toll. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that sad story. We'll start Narrative A with the Jakarta Post. Soccer riots are relatively common in Indonesia. And this tragedy highlights the problems with the use of tear gas by Indonesian police, which has played a role in many stadium disasters in the nation's history. It's baffling that the police claim they didn't know that tear gas was banned by FIFA. The entire tragedy can be blamed upon years of mismanagement and corruption at the heart of Indonesian soccer. And narrative B comes from The Independent. Indonesian soccer seems to be driven by hooliganism. And it must be remembered that the disaster began after the home team was beaten. While police and management of Indonesian soccer must be held accountable, we must also hope that the disaster will be a long-overdue wake-up call to stand up against hooligan culture and crowd violence. Why is soccer so associated with this hooliganism? It's not just in one country or the other. This is Indonesia. We're used to it happening maybe in England or somewhere. I wonder if just because it is such an international sport... Right. Because it is so popular and that's what people around the world are playing. A lot of energy and a lot of uh, pent up frustration is getting poured into this sport stadium right. on the crowd at, side. At some point, passion turns, I guess. Well, yeah. And you mix passion with alcohol. Oh, right. They're all wasted. Yeah. <laughs> that's, right. <laughs> that's right. Now it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. The U.S. Supreme Court hears a Turkish bank case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, New Republic, France 24, the Independent SCOTUS blog, the Lawfare blog, and the Associated Press. The U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday began hearing arguments over Turkish state-owned Hulk Bank's bid to avoid criminal charges in the U.S. for allegedly helping Iran evade economic sanctions. 
This comes after lower courts ruled in favor of the U.S. government, allowing the prosecution to proceed. At issue in Turkey, Hulk Bankasi versus United States is whether a foreign company can be held accountable under U.S. law if it is owned by a foreign government. Foreign countries enjoy sovereign immunity and cannot face criminal charges in the U.S. The Turkish bank, which was criminally charged for allegedly participating in a scheme to launder billions of dollars worth of Iranian oil and natural gas proceeds, claims that the U.S. Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act extends to state-owned businesses. Hulk Bank finds support from a brief filled by Azerbaijan, Pakistan, and Qatar, pointing out that if the decision stands, the U.S. would become an extreme outlier in the international community as no other country allows criminal prosecution of foreign states. This comes after the then-U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman, indicted Hulk Bank in 2019 on six criminal charges, including conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy to violate sanctions, bank fraud, money laundering, and conspiracy to commit both bank fraud and money laundering. Meanwhile, Turkey's foreign minister departed for a meeting to be held Wednesday with his U.S. counterpart, Antony Blinken, with an intent to smooth out strained relations between the two NATO allies. Thanks for that update, Melissa. We have an establishment-critical narrative on this story from the Daily Sabah. The U.S. Supreme Court must drop this unlawful and unprecedented prosecution against Halkbank, as the standing of this lower court's ruling would threaten future indictments of any sovereign state. By doing so, it would also help the smoothing out of critical relations between Ankara and Washington. And the pro-establishment narrative is provided by the SCOTUS blog. Hawk Bank may argue that it is entitled to sovereign immunity, but this notion rests on a false premise that the bank and the Turkish government are the same. Established international law and practice are unequivocal that despite being a publicly owned corporation, the bank is not a sovereign entity. This is about conforming to well-established international norms. The UK blocks a Scottish gender recognition bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, CNN, Sky News, Herald Scotland, and the BBC News. On Monday, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's government blocked the gender recognition reform bill passed by the Scottish Parliament last month, the first time the UK has invoked the power to veto a Scottish law. The UK government invoked Section 35 of the Scotland Act 1998, to stop the Scottish bill from becoming law, saying the bill would have an adverse impact on the operation of Great Britain-wide equalities legislation. The bill allowed transgender people in Scotland to self-declare as a different gender from the one they were assigned at birth. It also removed the need for a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria. The legislation also cut the time required to live in one's chosen gender before being able to change it officially from two years to six months. The age limit for official gender change has also been lowered from 18 to 16. Under the constitutional framework that details how Scotland is governed, the UK government had four weeks to review the legislation and stop it from receiving royal assent, the final step required for a parliamentary bill to become law. Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has denounced the unprecedented veto, adding that the Scottish government will defend the legislation. Those were the facts, and here's the narrative spin on this story. We'll start with an establishment critical narrative from the BBC. This veto is an attack on Scottish democracy and indicates contempt for progress. 
After years of public prejudice against transgender people, things began to move forward in Scotland. However, Rishi Sunak's decision could erase all of those gains and will negatively impact an already marginalized and vulnerable community. This is a dark day for trans rights and a dark day for democracy in the UK. And the New Statesman brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The so-called reforms in this bill seriously threaten women's rights and children's safety in Scotland as well as in the UK. By stripping all requirements to change one's gender, the Scottish legislature was making women vulnerable in female-only spaces. The veto has been painted as an unprecedented constitutional crisis, but the truth is that different gender recognition policies in the UK cannot coexist. I think this is a brave new world in terms of gender. These rules that we have now, the social norms, are not set in stone. And by the time we get to the end of this you know, gender culture war or whatever it is, it's going to have changed either even further in the progressive direction or it'll have bounced back a little bit. You know, I wouldn't lock in your uh, sensibilities today is, is what I would recommend to everybody. I think that's spot on. Yeah, this, there's a lot, of, lot more change than going to happen in one way or another or all, all the ways. Yeah, yeah, every way at once. A former New Mexico GOP candidate is arrested over shootings. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, CNN, NPR Online News, NBC, and Newsweek. Solomon Pena, a former candidate for New Mexico's legislature, was arrested Monday for allegedly paying and conspiring with four men to shoot at the homes of four political opponents, two state legislators and two county commissioners. Pena, a Republican who lost the race for New Mexico House District 14, has been accused of being the mastermind behind the shootings, which targeted the homes of Democratic politicians between December and January. Albuquerque police say Pena paid four gunmen $500 to carry out the shootings and that Pena participated in one himself. Evidence includes confidential witness testimony, cell phone records, bullet casings, and surveillance footage, according to Albuquerque's police chief. The victims were Bernalillo County Commissioner Adriana Barboa, former County Commissioner Debbie O'Malley, State Senator Linda Lopez, and new New Mexico House Speaker Javier Martinez. Pena allegedly claimed election fraud while visiting the homes of Barboa and O'Malley. Pena's arrest comes amid the investigation of two other reported shootings near the offices of elected officials, but authorities say those incidents are not related. Previously, Pena's opponent, Democratic State Representative Miguel Garcia, tried to have him removed from the ballot since he is an ex-felon. Despite losing the election by 47 points, Pena never conceded and instead alleged the election was rigged. No one was injured in the shootings. Okay, we have a Democratic narrative on this story from MSNBC. Baselessly claiming election fraud has now reached a critical point where extreme MAGA Republicans are resorting to violence against their political opponents, an extremely devastating development. If elected officials now have to fear literal gunfire, this is a blow to democracy and the GOP is to blame. And here comes the Republican narrative from KOB4. The justice system exists for a reason, and if Pena had orchestrated this horrible string of crimes, he should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. The GOP strongly condemns all forms of violence. The trial over Musk's Tesla tweets begins. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, CBS, and The Wall Street Journal. On Tuesday, a class action suit claiming Tesla shareholders were defrauded by tweets from CEO Elon Musk was scheduled to begin against the billionaire and his company in San Francisco. Musk, who now owns Twitter, claimed in an August 7, 2018 tweet that he had secured $72 billion in financing to take Tesla private. He then held firm to that notion in a follow-up tweet. Tesla's stock price rallied until it was revealed a week later that he didn't have the funding. This trial is the result of a class action suit filed by investors who own Tesla stock for a 10-day period around Musk's tweet, which is believed to have caused a $14 billion swing in wealth for investors during that time. Musk subsequently paid a $40 million settlement to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and stepped down as CEO as part of his agreement. He has since claimed he entered the settlement under duress and that he had believed he had the funding from representatives of Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Jury selection was scheduled to begin Tuesday, and the trial is expected to last until February 1st. The jury will have to determine whether or not U.S. District Judge Edward Chen's claim that Musk's tweet was reckless is valid. The trial comes as Tesla is dealing with financial challenges. Tesla's stock has declined 65% in the last year, wiping out more than $700 billion in shareholder wealth. The company has also reduced the price of some of its vehicle models in the U.S. by 20%. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with a narrative A from the New York Times. Musk and Tesla are already behind the eight ball because of the judge's summary judgment that the tweets were untruthful and recklessly shared. Neither Musk's previous settlement with the SEC nor his erratic behavior since taking over Twitter has done him any favors, and this case is probably going to cost him another devastatingly large chunk of his fortune. And narrative B comes from Fox Business. There's no way for Musk to get a fair trial. Tainted coverage of the situation surrounding his tweets, in addition to other reporting on his career, will sway the jury against him, which is why the judge should have allowed a change of venue. The plaintiff should also be more appreciative that despite what might have happened around the tweets, their Tesla shares are now worth six times as much as they were valued back then. In a new report, the Taliban is buying blue ticks on Twitter. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Daily Mail, Radio New Zealand, Deadline, and The Evening Standard. On Monday, BBC reported that at least two senior Taliban leaders and four of its supporters are using Twitter's paid-for verification feature, acquiring blue ticks next to their usernames. The senior Taliban leaders are identified as the head of the Taliban's Department for Access to Information, Hedayatollah Hedayat, and the head of the media watchdog at the Afghan Ministry of Information and Culture, Abdul Haq Hamad. Mohammad Jalal, one of the four prominent Taliban supporters with a blue tick, applauded CEO Elon Musk for buying and making Twitter great again, the same day the BBC published its report. Meanwhile, unconfirmed reports claim Twitter has revoked Taliban officials and its supporters' blue tick as the verified status can no longer be seen on three of the accounts. Prior to Musk's October 2022 Twitter takeover, verified status was only given to authentic accounts of public interest and couldn't be purchased. No Taliban officials have verified accounts. Today, the blue tick cost $8 for Android users and $11 for iPhone users per month. Anyone who subscribes to Twitter Blue gets priority ranking in searches, mentions, and replies. 
Okay, that's thanks for that update, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from First Post. Twitter's leniency toward the Taliban threatens to glorify violence and legitimize human rights abuses in Afghanistan. By allowing Taliban-affiliated accounts to use its platform, Musk potentially perpetuates extrajudicial killings, arbitrary arrests and torture, systematic segregation of women in Afghanistan, and the war on freedom. And the establishment critical narrative is written by BBC. The Taliban may not be considered the legitimate rulers of Afghanistan by the international community, but they have a right to a social media apparatus to counter what they consider Western propaganda. Musk's blue tick services don't promote Taliban messages. They simply allow community members to form their own opinions. Man, this is a philosophical quagmire here. I can see the value of at least knowing who the real authority figure in the Taliban is who's tweeting. I guess one then has to wonder, should they be allowed to tweet? But if it's free speech, it's free speech, right? It's true. And if you don't want to support it, you don't read it. You don't follow that person. But, but you know, that's where it kind of gets messed up, right? Because the more follows you have, the more money you get, the more power you have. Right. But there is this, you know, kind of great upheaval in social media where I feel like everyone kind of needs to get on the same playing field. It's going to take a while. And then we can start to chisel out the rules a little better. Yeah. What point of view is so extreme that it doesn't fall under the purview of free speech? And that's kind of a something that philosopher kings should be deciding, I guess, or maybe at least the courts or something. Our final story, scientists are steering lightning bolts with lasers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Nature, The Guardian, Euronews, Daily Mail, and Engadget. On Monday, the journal Nature Photonics published a report in which scientists demonstrated that a laser beam could be used to guide the path of lightning. The report claims that powerful lasers could potentially reroute lightning strikes away from critical locations and be an alternative to lightning rods. In experiments, scientists demonstrated this ability by firing powerful laser pulses from the top of a Swiss mountain during severe storms over several months in 2022. Aurelian Huard, a physicist at the École Polytechnique in Paliso, said metal rods are used almost everywhere to protect from lightning, but the area they can protect is limited to a few meters or tens of meters. The hope is to extend that protection to a few hundred meters. In the experiments, the scientists fired the laser pulses for approximately six and a half hours. The tower used during the test was struck 16 times by lightning. However, of the 16 strikes, only four occurred when the laser pulses were used. The ability to attract lightning away from critical infrastructure or populated areas could prove life-saving and prevent infrastructure damage. In Britain alone, approximately 30 to 60 people die each year from lightning that strikes the ground 300,000 times each year. And in 2019, a lightning strike at a UK power station thrust 1.1 million people into the dark in the UK's worst blackout on record. Matteo Clarisi, with the University of Glasgow, who was not on the research team, estimated that the experiments cost approximately $2.17 billion. If successful, the project could save money on weather-delayed projects like rocket launches and flight delays at weather-stricken airports. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that last story. Narrative A spin comes from Maine Blades. 
Lightning strikes are a daily and dangerous occurrence, although ironically, research indicates that this will become a diminishing threat with climate change. For now, however, 40 to 100 lightning strikes happen every second across the globe. An airplane is struck by lightning about once in every thousand flight hours. It's prudent to explore laser technology as an upgrade over traditional metal lightning rods. And narrative B comes from popular science. Weather alteration has a long and questionable history. U.S. taxpayers paid $3.6 million per year to fund the altering of the weather during the Vietnam War. In 1978, the Environmental Modification Convention went into effect banning weather modification during warfare. The treaty doesn't provide accountability or transparency, leaving the world's most dangerous powers to potentially violate the treaty. Without better regulation, this development is a slippery slope. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.